This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. All corporations have a financial responsibility to their customers, shareholders, employees, and the board of directors to look to be as successful as possible. But what about a moral responsibility? Suggestions by many scholars say that this also must be at the forefront of their thinking as well. The moral obligation is one that can have a variety of positive impacts on all of the parties that I just mentioned, the stakeholders, customers, employees, etc. Wharton professor Eric Oritz has joined with uh, Craig Smith, uh, professor of ethics and social responsibility at INSEAD, to look at what responsibility companies should have in this day and age. The book they have put together is titled The Moral Responsibility of Firms, and it's just out from Oxford Press. Eric is the director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership here at Wharton as well. Also with us is Amy Seppenwall, who's an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton, who is a contributor to the book. Great to see you both. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So this project, we have mentioned it for quite some time with you. Why was it so important to put together a book like this, looking at moral responsibility? Well, uh, it's a great, great, great question. And uh, the answer is that there's a very long-standing philosophical debate about whether organizations like business firms have a moral responsibility as firms themselves or whether it's only the individuals who are in the firm right. or another organization who have moral responsibility. So this has been a longstanding uh, problem, and a uh, number of people have contributed to it, but it's not really been resolved for decades. And, and, and so we decided that it was time to revisit this uh, kind of a question, and um, in partnership with INSEAD, and we had a, a, a generous grant from the Wharton and INSEAD um, Alliance, we decided to pull together the leading thinkers on this issue that we could find, have a conference on it, and then uh, write the book uh, based on that conference. And that's uh, that's what we have uh, now published. And, and there are there is a for and an against in this book. Right. And so uh, you, have, uh, you have some scholars and uh, among them are uh, Philip Pettit, who is a philosopher at Princeton, Michael Bratman, although he hedges somewhat in the book, but I think he's generally he's included in the ca- uh, chapter in favor of finding a more responsibility for firms uh, at Stanford. Peter French, who has, uh, writ- writ- uh, has written a very influential statement that moral responsibility can uh, can uh, be attributed to firms. So there are examples in the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book, and Amy uh, is included in that, as well as some other people, including uh, John Hasness uh, at Georgetown, um, uh, Ian Maitland, and some others, uh, are arguing that, uh, the other side of it. So um, there was... Uh, the, the basic argument there is that you have an individualist point of view that right. moral, the idea of moral responsibility really doesn't make sense to attribute to firms. Um, and just as some background for listeners, I, I raised this with a call uh, with just a, a everyday friend last night. And said, "Yeah, I'll be on the radio talking about this." And and she said, "What do you mean? Isn't it true that all? Yeah, you know, it seems like it's common sense that you would think." there would be moral responsibility on firms. Right. But then once you look into this a little more deeply, you realize, well, it's not really necessarily true. Just take the Volkswagen example, which we've uh, discussed a number of times on this show. Um, if my I bought a Volkswagen, uh, there, it was... Uh, it was not. It was not correct that it was represented as an environmentally friendly vehicle. In fact, it was a diesel that uh, there was environmental fraud conducted. 
But is it true that then Volkswagen as a whole is responsible Correct. for that? Or is it uh, in only the individuals within Volkswagen who may have known about it, who actually conducted the tests and can, uh, had, made the changes. were involved in yeah. the deception? Yeah. So it probably doesn't make sense for me to say, well, whoever sold me that car did a moral wrong. Because they're going to say, well, I didn't know uh, that the – uh, other people were doing this. I, I I was completely innocent. So the person who is a local dealer who sold me the car right. is probably not morally responsible, right? Right. And yet many people, I think, would assume that, well, VW is responsible, so then anyone associated with VW must be responsible. Right. So that's kind of the question that we're trying to uh, get to the bottom of. Amy? And, right, just to sort of amplify uh, the need for confronting these questions. So the book, at, in many instances, pursues at a fairly you know, high level of abstraction, thinking theoretically about corporate moral responsibility. But it's motivated by these instances of corporate wrongdoing, where it looks like maybe we can identify some individual perpetrators of the corporate wrong. But even were we to hold each of them responsible, um, it's not clear that we would fully have expunged the indignation that the corporate wrongdoing has elicited. So if you think about the BP oil spill, for example, which right. is the worst environmental disaster that the United States has seen, um, it turns out that what caused the oil spill was a number of relatively small errors for which there are individuals who are guilty, but they're guilty just for their small contribution. Right. And if we were to um, hold each of them responsible, punish each of them in accordance with their contribution, we really would not um, end up with the kind of response that matches up with the amount of harm that BP created. And so there is this felt sense that, as um, some of the authors in the book uh, put it, uh, of a responsibility deficit. Um, so this idea that holding only individuals responsible fails to fully account for all of the harm that occurred and that we need to do something else um, if we want to respond appropriately in the something else it's often urged, takes the form of punishing the corporation or blaming the corporation or holding the corporation responsible. Well, I, I guess then shifting back to VW for a second, because with what is going on still today with VW and the German government pursuing potential charges against the higher-ups at, at VW who may have known about what is going on here, it, it truly does have you take a look of who was involved, what were the circumstances around it, as Amy laid out in the in the BP case, you know, a bunch of little things kind of led up to this grand disaster and, and where the responsibility truly lies. Should there actually be a a personal there should be a personal responsibility, but should there be a moral responsibility as well? Well, that's exactly it. And the and the legal proceedings that you have with VW and with these other cases shows you why practically this philosophical ma uh, issue matters. Right. So the question is, do we? Is it okay to just say, let's have a big judgment against VW as a company, make them pay a huge penalty, and then is that enough? Or as individualists, what I call in the book, individualist uh, uh, ethical theorists would say, no, that that's completely not okay because you are essentially then, and this is the reverse of what Amy is indicating, you're essentially letting all these people who really did the bad acts off the hook right. and sort of pretending that by punishing a big uh, auto company, we're getting that. Another good example of this, and this is uh, mentioned by Craig Smith in his introduction, is the financial um, the financial crisis oh, yeah. and what happened yeah. after that. So yeah. what happened after that is very few, if any, 
actual human beings yep. were uh, convicted of crimes or punished for various allegations about, of financial fraud, but you had very big and large penalties paid by banks and other financial institutions that admitted to crimes and admitted to wrongs and paid huge amounts of damages. The question is, does that really help anything if you, does that really help to deter moral bad behavior if you're just putting it on the shareholders of the banks and, the, and, and, and you're letting the bank as an entity take the hit and not actually going to uh, individuals. And what, just one footnote on that, there has been an actual policy change on that. Sally Yates, who's become famous for other things yes. uh, more since then, uh, has a influential memo that, that changed policy within the Department of Justice and said, we are not, as a matter of policy, going to do that anymore. We're, only gonna, we're not gonna pursue just the corporation or settle cases just with the corporation. We must have individuals who are on the hook and for our purposes, that's one of the reasons uh, this this practical question of moral responsibility matters. Because if you have to, it, it, in a way, it goes back to the moral foundation of the problem Correct. to decide how the law should treat this issue. And, and I think that that comes up uh, quite often. And you mentioned the financial crisis, and I was just thinking about that as an example of how many Americans who went through had had to deal with all kinds of different issues because of the financial crisis, and most recently, Wells Fargo, all of the people that had affected accounts from Wells Fargo, and yet really there wasn't a whole lot of penalty against the people themselves involved, especially people at the C-suite level, other than, for Wells Fargo's case, loss of pay, loss of, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of benefits. You know, that was really yep. it. Sure, the bank paid... $185 million or whatever the number was. But still, a lot of people would say, yes, why aren't we going after the, the, the corporate people in this? Right. Well, exactly. And uh, there are lots of uh, good legal reasons why there are limitations on being able to seek out the individual people who did the act. So for one thing, in an organization, it's often easy to hide when you're doing something you might know is wrong. Right. But you, you make sure there's no paper record or you're telling uh, an underling to do the to do the act, uh, knowing that that underling will take the fall if anything goes wrong or if it's discovered. So there are lots of problems in holding uh, individuals uh, responsible. But uh, you're absolutely right to, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a, you know, one other thing, there's a public sense, like when you mentioned the Wells Fargo, which is a great example, I think there's a sense that everybody wants to find someone to blame. Sure. And so you have a name called Wells Fargo and everybody yeah. goes on that. Yeah. And then somehow if you, if you, if you succeed in getting them to pay a bunch of money and, and admit to some wrongdoing, then maybe that is uh, enough. But it might be enough for public for the public sentiment. But if you look at really the moral consequences of that, as you just said, you might be letting a lot of people off the hook and making it easier right. to deal with the problem when you're not really providing the right incentives and deterrent and 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 uh, and and deterrence going forward. Well, actually, blame is something that you bring up in your in, in the section that you did, and, and how that kind of fits into this whole process. And that you know, blame is something that, as we just laid out. A lot of people want to associate blame, but n not necessarily blaming the corporation may be always the right situation. Uh, that's exactly right. So my worry is that what it is to blame is in part to seek to induce the experience of guilt. 
And um, on the theory that I advance in the chapter, corporations don't have a capacity for emotion, which means in particular that they can't experience guilt. So then we get to the question, well, what sense is there in blaming this entity that can't experience guilt? Uh, And um, here and elsewhere, I've argued that I think what we're doing when we blame the corporation is very similar to what Eric just described in terms of our reaction to Wells Fargo, that um, Wells Fargo is a stand-in. It's a placeholder. We know that there are individuals within the corporation who deserve blame. We just don't know who they are. And so we... Uh, express our blame as if it's directed toward Wells Fargo. But what we really mean is there are some real people here and they deserve blame. Um, And uh, I think understanding the practice of corporate criminal liability in that way um, makes a lot more sense. And it uh, makes the practice compelling to those of us within the academy who have this conception of the corporation whereby it's just an excess of contracts, or even if it's the kind of entity that can act on its own behalf, it doesn't rise to the level of being the kind of entity that is an appropriate um, target of what are called the moral reactive attitudes, or it's just not a moral agent. It's not the kind of entity that can um, really be held morally responsible in its own right. Eric? Well, in general, uh, even though Amy and I are co-authors, we occasionally disagree. And uh, (laughs) I think she strikes a very strong argument for the individual side, and I agree with a lot of it. I think I'm persuaded that both the collectivist view, which says that there can be some moral responsibility correctly attributed to firms, and the individual's view can be correct. And I think we might disagree about whether that's true. Uh, But I'd like to highlight one other theme that we haven't talked about yet, and that's that even if you – this debate between – about where you put the emphasis on moral responsibility at the firm level or individual level. Right. uh, Everyone contributing to this topic believes that ethics matters. Sure. (laughs) So that there's not a question – and you you started out the uh, hour – our discussion saying – and there's some who might say, well – Financial responsibility is the only thing our firm should care about. Right. Forget about moral responsibility. Right. None of the authors, despite the differences in the book, uh, took that view. And so, I, and I think that's a common view within the field of business ethics uh, that you uh, that you can't say you, you don't uh, you don't check your morals at the uh, at the office door when you go in. And so, one way or another, more uh, uh, morals uh, matter. Kendi Hess was one philosopher who has a chapter in the book who talks about that. And one other thing maybe to highlight is um, was raised by in another chapter by Nian Ha Shia, who's uh, at Harvard Business School, uh, who also said, you know, it's not just the bad moral actions that we have to attribute. It's also positive actions. Right. So companies right. every day do huge amounts of good in the world in terms of productivity, uh, supplying, and, and he also, in, in the basic economic financial functions, but uh, Shia also indicates that there are lots of positive uh, duties and responsibilities that firms might take or have a, ha, have as well. And so one of them might be what, what's called a duty to rescue. So if you are a, a firm, let's say, in the healthcare industry and you're particularly able to deal with some uh, rare uh, disease. Mm-hmm. And this, there are examples like this uh, that are taught in business uh, ethics courses like the Merck case with respect to river blindness. Then some of those cases, there is a moral argument that the firm should take the extra uh, step to handle that issue, even if 
there would not be a return immediately to financial returns yet. So, so, uh, so, so there are some other uh, larger themes that have been addressed on, that are addressed in this book too, which haven't, I think, been addressed in other treatments of this topic yet. Eight four four Wharton is the number to give us a call. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. On the line from Chicago is Paul. Paul, go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks so much for taking my call at short notice. Hey, uh, I was at a, uh, a seminar, and Anton Volukas was uh, uh, speaking, and he was talking about he – w- he was the uh, bankruptcy examiner for the bankruptcy of Lehman, and he was talking about the whole meltdown and how that, that evolved over that one seminal weekend. And, and here again, one of the things they had to worry about was uh, on Sunday evening, they had to come up with a solution at, I think, 7 p.m. Eastern time because that was the time the futures markets opened in Japan. Right. And how over the weekend, you know, oh, it's going to take – Two hundred million dollars or two hundred billion dollars to get out that layman, or and the, the next day it was like five hundred billion dollars, and it finally got down to the point that layman was going to go down, and we were going to save everybody else. But the seminal point was that he stipulated that there was nothing illegal that any of these banks or bankers. I'll use Jamie Dimon as an example, not that he was the counterpoint, but he he certainly had a high profile at that time and does today, but. Uh, he, there was nothing illegal that these people did. There was no law that they broke. It right. was all beyond the law. And although you can come back like your 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 uh, uh, the people you're talking with right now say we need to retrofit this, that's fine. But uh, you know, in a, in a free and open society, you're always going to get you know sort of seepage out from underneath the law. Sure. I, I'm just I just like to point that out. That okay. Uh, this individual who was right at the point of uh, knowledgeable of, of what was going on. He okay. said these guys really didn't commit anything uh, illegal. Okay, Paul, thanks for the thanks for the call. Greatly appreciate it. Amy? Um, I mean, I think this is all really, really interesting, and it's certainly true that we know that deregulation in the um, 1990s and early 2000s Uh, allowed for a lot of the activity that then precipitated the financial crisis. So it really is the case that a lot of what happened, as damaging as it was, um, wasn't contrary to the letter of the law. And it's, I think, just a general problem that it's really hard for the law to restrain um, actors in a lot of contexts, and maybe especially actors in the financial context, because those actors tend to be just so very smart, and they have so many incentives to try to skirt the law where they can. And you can almost think about them as these sort of rapidly mutating bacteria who um, become immune to the latest um, antibiotics very quickly. Sure. So the law seems to be very frequently one step behind. Um, uh, but you know, we shall, should also not neglect the idea that the law is just one way of responding, and in many ways, it is the most powerful. Um, but public outrage is uh, another way of responding, and we can be outraged even at acts that are not illegal because we recognize that they're immoral. Eric, yeah, and I, w- I agree with all of that. I'd just like to add that it's also true that there were uh, a number of uh, bad actions and illegal actions that were taken by very large financial institutions, and that they pled. Uh, guilty or uh, responsible to those. And one of the criticisms of those uh, agreements was that even though the companies, the banks were agreeing that they had had violated law, and this this included uh, uh, deceptive practices with respect to a lot of the mortgage uh, securitizations and and the 
origins, uh, a lot of pressure being given on the origins of mortgages that were, you know, weren't really checking uh, the information that should have been checked. So uh, there were uh, wrong, there were wrong activities that were taken, and the pro the the criticism that has been given. Uh, from academics and from others about what happened there is that individual people were not held responsible. Right. And one of the reasons is it's really hard to to pin these kinds of complicated financial mis misdeeds on individual people, especially when you have very large and well-financed legal defenses that are going for them. Right. And so there's a tendency sometimes for the prosecutors to just say, okay, let's let's just settle for a multi-million dollar or higher sure. uh, uh, settlement. We get credit, we can we can say we solve the problem, we we meet the public outrage in part, but you actually didn't get to yep. the fundamental problem. So the yep. unintended signal you're giving is that this is okay as long as you don't get caught or as long as you don't get um, as long as you don't get uh, in, in, into a situation with, where, where you can't hire very good legal defense to get you off the hook. Quickly, we've got about 45 seconds left. Uh, I wanted to bring up uh, a letter which actually you and a variety of different professors have, uh, have put forth to Congress uh, about the support of the rule of law. Give us uh, 45 seconds on, on that and, and if you can and, and really tell us what was behind that. Well, this is uh, this is switching the topic radically, but we uh, there is an open letter to legislator, legislators and others that uh, Amy, I, and, and, a, and a few other of our colleagues helped to organize. Um, we have about three dozen Wharton faculty. I should emphasize that it's only individuals. So in the th keeping of the theme of the moral responsibility firm, this is just a few professors who have yeah. come together and made this statement. But we felt that we had an obligation to speak out uh, with respect to the rule of law, given that there have been numbers of violations, which uh, we also detail in, a, in a, an opinion piece that came out today, I believe, in the Daily Pennsylvanian. Uh, so that's basically the summary, is that when... And it's limit. It's related to the conversation we're having now. Is I think when you you have to bring it home to yourself in a sure. business or in an academic, and when you see something wrong happening, sometimes there's a duty to speak up and and say so. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Eric. All the best to you. Thank you very much. The book, by the way, is The Moral Responsibility Affirms. It is out available in bookstores and online right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.